All right, who's been dying to hear about the fourfold gospel? You've been waiting all week, right? That's good. Fourfold gospel. Um, this is uh, kind of a key identifier of the Christian and Missionary Alliance um, church denomination. And so we're going to walk through what the four folds of the fourfold gospel are or is, and uh, that way you have clarity on what it means. Uh, some people say, what is the fourfold gospel? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's, those are the four gospels. But um, this is really a, um, a take on what the gospel is, but like different angles of the gospel. And the first one we're probably very familiar with. And if you come from an evangelical background, you'll be like, obviously that's what the gospel is. Jesus as Savior. Um, but the reality is that Jesus is more than our Savior. He's not less than our Savior. And so we're going to look at that. And this is uh, something that was developed by the founder of the Alliance, A.B. Simpson. We saw his history last week, so I won't tell you his history here this morning. But it is something that um, is a distinctive of the Alliance. Not that it is gospel itself, but we really do believe that the gospel is far wider and broader than just the salvation piece. And you'll see that this morning. So... The first fold of the fourfold gospel is that Christ is our Savior. Like I said, if you grew up in North American evangelicalism, you're very familiar with this. Simply put, um, this is, the, um, this is the, 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 the belief that Jesus, when he died on a cross, he died for our sins so that we could be made right with God and that we could be saved from both the consequences of our sins as well as into life in Christ and the gift that that is. John 3.16, do you guys want to sing it together? You want to sing it together? John 3.16 says that. We're doing it together, right? God so loved the world. No? Gosh. <laughs> you guys are all... <laughs> John 3.16 says this. Let me read it for you. Well, it's more. I'm reading a little bit more here. It says, So just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. This, you see, is how much God loved the world. Enough to give his only son, his special son, so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should have eternal life. After all, God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world would, could be saved by him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is condemned already because they didn't, they didn't believe in the name of God's only special son. In this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light, because what they were doing was evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, people that don't come into the light, in case their deeds get shown up and reproved. But people who do the truth come to the light, so that it can be clear that what they have done has been done in God. That's the longer version of John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, so that all who believe in him won't perish, but have eternal life, uh, everlasting life. The, the language of eternal life we usually assume means life after death forever, and it does mean that, but it's actually speaking to a quality of life too. Eternal life is life and life to the full, the life that we are made to live, and we can be saved into that. And this is on the basis of a theology or doctrine that we are all sinful, that we all have um, something that is in us called the sin nature, and that uh, that sinfulness or that nature that is a part of all of us 
uh, the flesh. It, it lends toward or leads us towards uh, the darkness, leads us towards doing things that aren't in accordance with God's desire for us, aren't in accordance with God's ways, and therefore leave us condemned when we stand before a perfect and holy God because we are imperfect and unholy. We are sinful. And the gospel truth that Jesus Christ is our Savior is that he saves us from the consequences that are rightly ours because of our sin. We are free from sin, not just freedom free from the consequences of it, but free from its grip on our life. That's the idea with it. And to know Christ is to know the light, is for the light to be shone on that reality, and then for us to be able to live with a grace and a mercy that only comes from God because him sending his son to pay the price for our sin. Now, Oftentimes when we think of Christ our Savior, we kind of have a limited scope, like I said. We typically think of e the eternal separation that is a consequence of our sin. And that's a, not a small thing. It's a major thing to be separated from God for eternity is a significant thing. And it's a very good reason to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is salvation. You are saved for now and forever by Christ and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. But there's way more to Christ as our Savior than just that reality. And, and I think sometimes in, in our limited scope or some of our traditions, we kind of miss some of those things. And so I want to unpack a few of those things. Other things that we are saved from, and then I want to say things we are saved for. Uh, we're saved from the guilt of sin, the conviction. We talked about this with our students on Friday. We're not only saved from the consequences of it, but we're actually saved from the guilt of it. And when you're saved and released from the guilt of it, you can actually live truly free in love. We do a lot of silly things from a place of feeling conviction and guilt. And what, what this Christ our Savior offers us is actually freedom from the guilt itself. So that we don't have to live from a place of guilt and shame. We can live free. We're saved from the consequences of sin, both the eternal consequences, but also the immediate consequences. It doesn't mean that if you do something dumb, there isn't a consequence. If you break the law, you may go to jail. You don't get to go, no, I'm Christ my Savior. I'm saved in Christ. I don't go. There's still human consequences to your brokenness, to your sin. If you sin against somebody, there may be a relational consequence. If you break the law or you say something rude about your boss or you steal money from somewhere, you may get fired. And that's not, you don't get free from that. Those are human consequences. Those are worldly consequences to misbehavior or poor, you know, actions or breaking the law. But you're free in the sense of the guilt, and you're actually free in the sense of the ultimate consequences for your sin, both now and forever. You're free from the curse of the law. This is actually like thoroughly New Testament theology that the law, knowing what's wrong and trying to make up for it with your own atonement, is actually slavery itself. That's what Paul says. And Christ offers us freedom from the need to make up for our bad decisions, our poor behavior, our sinfulness. And so you're free from the slavery and the bondage that that has on you and the hold that that has on your life. You're free from that. You're saved from that. You're saved from an evil conscience. You're saved from the belief that you can do nothing but wrong. The truth is that because Christ is our Savior, what he did on the cross for us, he saved us from this belief that there's no way out of this broken cycle of sin. That you're actually free from your evil conscience, believing that that's your identity and that's all you will ever be. That is a gift of freedom. You are saved by Christ into believing that you have an identity that isn't an evil person who can't do anything but wrongdoing. You are made in the image of God and you are given 
life and life to the full. You're given eternal life. You're given the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the flesh. And so that is a salvation for you. You are free from a heart that's bent towards selfishness. As we grow in Christ and we live in Christ, if we are being formed, it may never reach its point in perfection where we don't have a heart bent towards selfishness, but if the gospel is true and the Holy Spirit is changing us and forming us by his presence, then we will, over time, as we grow in Christ, have a heart that is bent towards goodness and selflessness and love and light and not evil and selfishness. And that is a salvation. That's a gift. That's a blessing to live that way and for that to be happening in us. And then finally, we're saved from the fear of death. That's one of the things that marks, should mark, someone who follows Jesus, who's been saved by Christ, is that, look, death has no hold on you. You are saved for now and forever. There is life beyond this life, and so we don't have to live with this existential angst of death. You don't have to live your life hoping to fit everything in this life until you're gone forever and there's no existence. We actually believe we live in light of eternity. That's, that we're, we're saved by a belief in life and eternity, and, and so we're saved in this life so that this life is not dominated by decisions that are just for like an immediate um, experience, but we can live a life that doesn't fear death, but lives in light of it. It just changes the way that we live, and it relieves us from existential fear and angst of what would happen if I died today, or what would happen if I, my, my child died today, or what would happen if I took this risk. It doesn't mean you live recklessly. That's not the invitation but you're free from that fear or that existential fear. Not that you won't have it. You will always have it. But when you're turned back towards this vision of the cross, Christ is our Savior, it's in those moments where you get free from that. And when you live out of that, that's a gift. But we're also saved into things. These are things we're saved from. We're saved into things. And I want you to hear some of these things because this really matters. You are saved into right standing with God. To know that you are standing justified in front of God is a gift to your life and your soul. You don't have to justify yourself. You can't. That is an amazing freedom. You're saved into that. You're saved into the awareness and favor of God's love. That God loves you, he sees you, and he wants to bless you. That is a salvation in your life. It produces fruit in your life. You're saved into security of God's love. That there's nothing you can do to lose that. Christ as Savior means it's once and for all. It's done for you. There's nothing you can do to lose his love for you. So it's security, and that's an amazing gift to have the security of God's love regardless of our future missteps. We're saved into a new heart. The New Testament teaches about regeneration and that when we are saved, we're actually regenerated. The Spirit of God starts working on our heart and producing a new heart. And don't you want one? Do you think your heart's good? you think it's perfect? Don't you want... Isn't there something in you that's always like longing for certain things to be worked out? The promise of Christ as our Savior is a promise of the regeneration of your soul and your heart. You're saved into a daily and mercy, a daily grace and mercy, a recognition of mercy and a recognition of grace which produces gratitude. What a life we could live if every day we woke up remembering that Christ is our Savior and that because He's our Savior, we can we, we live with new mercies daily and new blessings daily. It's an incredible life to live, and that is the promise that Christ offers us in salvation. We are saved into a life with the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Mike was talking this morning when we were leading, when he was leading worship this morning about the, 
the reality of the Spirit of God is in us, and that he's forming us, and that he's dwelling in us and among us. We're saved into that. And without Christ's salvation, we don't have that. With Christ's salvation, we have that. That's the promise. And so we can rely on that. God's promised provision for our life is something we're saved into. And then eternal life, life to the full. The life you were intended to live, life with the most meaning, with the most purpose, with the most goodness, the life you were intended to live, you're saved into that, both now and forever. That is salvation, Christ our Savior. And I hope that gives you a broader picture, a beautiful picture of the gospel. And this is just the first fold of the gospel. We've got more to go, which is exciting. Uh, I just wanted to mention this. How is it received? Because you may be hearing this, and you're like, okay, this is new to me. I'm not sure about that. Or how do, I, how do I receive that? What's the process here for that? Uh, we talked to our students about this on Friday, that oftentimes what happens in the presence of God, when we go to God, the first thing that often happens is we experience conviction. It's a good thing. You're not free from feeling conviction. You're free from living from guilt and shame. Conviction's a good thing. What life in Christ offers us is an opportunity to repent of that, to turn from those ways. And so how do we receive Christ as our Savior? We feel conviction. We see conviction. We know conviction. And we go to Christ as our Savior. We turn from our ways and we receive his forgiveness. We don't try to make up for it. We receive it. And when you receive forgiveness and you live from the place of forgiveness, that is what the proper motivation is for salvation. And that's what leads us to living out obedience in the ways of Jesus, not to make up for our guilt and our shame, but actually living freely from his love. So how do you receive it? You go to God, and you turn into your conviction. You don't turn away from it. You don't ignore it. You don't set it aside. You don't avoid it. You don't push it aside. You turn directly into whatever that conviction is, because that's a gift. But you don't let that conviction turn to shame and guilt. You seek repentance and forgiveness, and you receive it from Christ, because that's the promise. And then you follow in his ways as an obedient follower. Truth is that we're all in need of a savior. We're all in need of everybody, not just you. If the gospel is true, then the whole world is in need of a savior. Everybody in Milton is in need of a savior. And what a gift it is to know that and to have one. Our sinfulness, it condemns all of us. Whether you believe it or not, or you think it or not, whether you ask someone what their perspective on salvation is or sin is. Well, you'll get a mixed bag of answers here in Milton, but the truth is that their sinfulness is condemning them in the way that yours condemns you. It's not just awareness of your sinfulness that condemns you. Everybody feels that. I don't know if anybody remembers their life before Christ. You felt condemnation, didn't you? You felt, you felt conviction, didn't you? You felt shame. You felt guilt. You just didn't know what to do with it. Well, you have an answer of what to do with it. You have a promise. You have a gift. It's salvation. If this is your first time hearing this, or hearing it this way, I want to encourage you to not let this week go by without reaching out to somebody. You can reach out to me. I'm always accessible. I'd love to process this further with you. Christ as Savior. Christ as Sanctifier is our second fold of the fourfold gospel. Christ as our Sanctifier. It's represented here by the large basin, which in the temple was used for regular cleansing and washing. The image here is um, even when you are in Christ, you walk day to day and your feet get dirty. You make poor decisions. You, 
You make mistakes, you still sin, you still wrestle with your flesh, and so you collect dirt along the way. And the idea is that Christ doesn't just save you once and for all, but he is actually here to make you new and fresh and cleanse you over and over again. That's a process of sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians, it says this, Now may the God of peace make you completely holy. May your complete spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Some Christian traditions tend to focus a lot on the salvation piece, and we miss the work of sanctification that Christ offers us. The truth is that there is no Christ as Savior without Christ as Sanctifier. Christ is Savior, but his saving is into a life of sanctification. And that is as much a gift as his salvation. Your life being made new, your daily and weekly and monthly and annual cleansing is as much a gift to your life and your soul and as much a promise of eternal life as salvation. It is a grace and a mercy from God, not less than salvation. It's the same. It is. Christ is your Savior and he's your sanctifier. If you're more interested in salvation than sanctification, you've actually missed the gift of life in Christ. If you're more interested in the fire assurance of going to heaven when you die, but you're not all that interested in being changed and be formed daily in Christ and by Christ into a more loving and gentle and gracious and good and selfless presence today, then you've actually missed the whole gospel. You've missed the whole New Testament. You missed out on life and life to the full. It saves us into a life of transformation that's what Christ offers us. The beauty of the fourfold gospel is that it holds this tension with effective balance. Christ as our Savior, but also Christ as our sanctifier. And it doesn't set one necessarily above the other. There's a process of Savior that leads to sanctifier, but it doesn't ever stop at Savior. And the gift to your life will actually be stepping into a life of sanctification that Christ will do in and through you. There's no Christ Savior without Christ as sanctifier. Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. The gift of salvation is to be sanctified, and sanctification is as much of a gift of salvation. I just want to say these things because I think you'll agree with them. Because of Christ's salvation in my own life, I desire to be a more patient and less angry husband. And the promise is that Christ will do that in and through me. Because of my salvation, I want to be, I desire to be less addicted and more self-controlled. And that is what Christ will do in and through me, through sanctification. I want to be more peaceful and less anxious. And the promise is that Christ will do that in and through me as I turn towards him. I want to work hard, but I want to find contentment in what I have. I don't know about you. You work really hard, but you're never content with what you have. Don't you want to work hard, but also just find contentment with what you have? That is the work that Christ does, the power of the Spirit in you. That is sanctification. I want to be someone who's known by, but not just known for this. I actually want to be it, somebody who serves others before adding pleasure and comfort to my life. Like I, want to, I want that to happen, and I want my lifetime to be a life growing in that direction. That is sanctification, and Christ will do that in and through me as he is formed in and through me. 
I want to be a reconciler of relationships. I want to cause less division, and I want to bring about more reconciliation. Because of Christ's salvation, that's the invitation. There's a life of that, and Christ will do that in and through me. He will sanctify me to be less divisive and, and more reconciliatory. And what a gift that is. That is eternal life in me and through me. I want to speak life to people. I don't want to gossip more, criticize more. I actually want to get less, like, gossiping critical. I don't know if you know, like, it's kind of two ways it goes. The older you get, sometimes you get, like, a little bit more grumpy and critical and angry, and sometimes you just become this incredible person pervaded by love and peace, and I want to be that. Like, I want to be known as I get older. I want, I want teenagers, like, 10, 12 years from now to not think of me as, like, scary, even older guy, but, like, more loving and firming encouraging, gentle, kind guy who happens to be a little older and wiser and probably still says, shut up and put your phone down or something, but like in a loving way, like in like a, oh, like it's not, he's not angry, grumpy, critical guy, you know? I want to give more generously and I want to be less attracted to material wealth in my life. Because of Christ's salvation, the promise is that Christ will sanctify me into that. And what an amazing life that would be to be that and become that. I want to experience more sexual freedom in its proper confines of marriage and feel less shame and angst over sexual misbehavior or deviance. The truth is that scripture teaches us that Christ will sanctify us, make us new, make us fresh, make us whole in that regard. And that's a good thing. What an amazing thing. So Christ is our sanctifier. As we turn our attention to Christ, we aim to live according to his ways. The God of peace makes us complete, makes us holy, and sanctifies us. That's what the New Testament teaches. I want to read this quote from the uh, book on the fourfold gospel. Uh, it says this about the sanctification piece. You can follow with me here. Sanctification means love, supreme love to God and all mankind. This is the fulfilling of the law. It is the spring of all obedience, the fountain from which all things flow. We cannot be conformed to the image of God without love, for God is love. This is perhaps the strongest feature in a truly sanctified life. It clothes all the other virtues with softness and warmth. It takes the icy peaks of a cold and naked consecration and covers them with mosses and verdure. It sends bright sunlight into the heart, making everything warm and full of life, which would otherwise be cold and desolate. The savage was able to stand before his enemies and be cut into pieces with stoical firmness that disdained to cry, but his indifference was like some stony cliff. It was not the warm, tender love of the heart of Jesus, which made him bow weakly to his painful death because it was his Father's will. Do you see that? He's talking about the difference between giving your life as a sacrifice, like a savage, like a tough guy in a war. Yeah, I'll be the warrior who dies, but that's not the same as the one who gives their life from love and submission to the Father's will. It says it was spontaneous, glad, a glad outflowing of his loving heart, Christ's loving heart. Dear friends, if we are so filled with the love of God, it will flow out to others. We shall love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is the gift of salvation. That is the gift of sanctification. And Christ does that. The third fold of the fourfold gospel is Christ our healer. The image here is uh, oil poured out. For divine life and physical healing. A.B. Simpson, he had his own experience with divine healing. And so this is one of the folds of his fourfold gospel because of his own experience with being healed in a miraculous way. 
And his conviction is that Christ, the healer, will provide us the necessary physical vitality for the ministry and the life he's called us to. That's the idea with it. So it's not a promise to everyone for any reason, but the promise is to those who he has a mandate for, he will provide the physical vitality necessary to accomplish his vision and calling for us in our life. And this is found in Isaiah 53, 4 to 5. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. If you know your Bible history, you know that this is actually a prophetic word that was written hundreds of years before Christ's atoning sacrifice about Christ's atoning sacrifice. And the idea there is that Christ's atonement, his body being broken, crushed for our iniquities, being chastised for our peace, and the wounds that he suffered was actually for our healing. So Christ not only saved us, he not only sanctifies us, but he is the very provision of health that we need for the life that we are invited into. Now, I'll be honest with you. I grew up in a uh, church tradition that would be called, uh, would lean towards uh, something called cessationism, which uh, really, to sum it up, believes that some of the spiritual gifts don't exist anymore in the way they did in, in the New Testament that you see. So the gift of healing and the idea that somebody could actually have a spiritual gift of healing and, and literally like have the gift to be able to lay hands on somebody and heal them and they would get healed. And so that's the, that's the group that I grew up with. And I've grown up just with a hyper-skepticism towards physical healing and the manifestation of physical healing. And there's a lot of conversations to have around it um, that you can get caught up in the weeds, but I think they're important to have. But what I've experienced so far in my life in ministry, even when I was a part of a movement like that, and especially now joining a movement that is just unapologetically uh, has faith in Christ as our healer, I hear stories, I read books about it, I hear missionary journeys. If you talk to any missionary overseas and the things that they've seen and experienced, it's like there's just, it's hard to have any explanation other than Christ probably still heals for his own divine purpose and I don't know what to do with that, but trust in it in faith and believe it and see it as actually a great mercy and gift in the way that salvation and sanctification actually is that. I can get hyper-rational about it, just like you probably can because you're a Western person and maybe you're educated here in, and around here, and, uh, and so you can, you're just trained to be anti-supernatural all things. So I get that. I am hear you, and I'm with you on that. But the truth is the more time you spend with the body of Christ and the more time you spend in ministry— the more that you will see things that you just can't explain. And our belief in the Christian Missionary Alliance is that that is Christ actually healing people for his divine purpose. And he does that. And it's actually by his wounds that we have that privilege. And so at this church, we ask and we pray in Christ's name by his wounds to heal. And if there's something in your life that you're wanting prayer for healing about, our elders at this church will anoint you with oil, and we will pray that God would provide you with divine healing and do that in faith and trust. So Christ is our healer. And the fourth, Christ is our coming king. This is the belief that Christ will come back to earth and he will reign forever as king in the fullness of his kingdom. In Acts 1.11, it says this, The Galileans, they said, Why are you standing here staring into heaven? This is after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the the response is, this Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way that you saw him go into 
heaven. So the belief is that there is a coming back of Jesus as king. In my licensing exam, I think I've told this before, but many of you were in the room. Uh, when I was getting licensed here in the CMA, it's basically you've got to like pass an examination to be called a pastor in our denomination. And I failed my first licensing exam. And uh, part of that, there's probably a few reasons for that. Uh, one of the primary ones was when I was asked about the fourfold gospel, um, I got the first three right, and I got the last one dead wrong. Um, I said, Christ is our king. And I was adamant about it. And the examiner was like, what kind of king? And I said, our good king. <laughs> and they're like, no. And I'm like, our, the king of kings. <laughs> no, um, the benevolent king. You know, I was like just grabbing here, right? And the reality is I missed the coming part. At a district retreat I was at with the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, a couple of months ago, uh, we're a part of a district, one of six in Canada, and so we have these retreats where pastors and licensed workers get together uh, to pray for one another, to grow together, to, to just relax and stuff. And uh, a, a gentleman named Sunder, who's a retired pastor uh, of the Christian Missionary Alliance, Rexdale Alliance Church is an iconic alliance church in our denomination, this part of Canada, and Sunder uh, uh, is just this um, lifelong, incredible pastor. Was he your pastor when you were growing like when you guys were teenagers? He married all four of you? Not together. No, sorry, that's weird. <laughs> I, uh, just so you know, my, my parents met at Rexdale Alliance Church and Youth Group, and Sunder was their pastor, and Glenn and Lori also met at Rexdale Alliance Youth Group. Okay, but did, and he married the two of you? Yeah, Downey married, okay. Anyway, Sunder was there a lifelong, a, a long, like he served his whole life at, at one place, an incredible, incredible man. And um, at this last district retreat, he was supposed to teach on Christ as coming king, and he said, you know what? I'm dropping the coming and I'm just preaching on Christ as king. And I was like, that's provocative, right? Um, don't get uncomfortable, Darren. You, yeah, talk to um, Shane about it. But you no, know, it was really, it was healing for me. Because for me, my focus has been recently. I mean, my, my upbringing was Christ is coming king. Christ is going to come back. But my focus lately has been Christ is king. You'll hear this language all the time here. That Christ is both our coming king, but he's also our present king. We see Christ and his kingship as a real reality today, a present reality today on earth as it is in heaven, and it's a, it's a coming kingdom, the way Jesus Christ prayed himself. And so we believe that Christ is our king, not that he's going to be when he comes, that he is today, and that he has sovereign rule over his whole kingdom. And, and then the kingdom is really anywhere that that Christ has authority and sovereignty and reign over, which is your life as you submit to Christ and what you do out of submission to Christ is, is literally the, the reign of God's kingdom. We talked about that. We are the church and we exist as the church to actually be the loving rule and reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's true about the church and the nature of the church. And, and so Christ is our king. But what's also true is that there is a coming. There's a, there's a trajectory. There's a linear movement. We, we believe that time um, isn't cyclical. There's some religious systems. I don't know if you grew up in it, but, the, but they believe that time is cyclical. I think Hinduism would believe that time is cyclical, right? And, and we in the Christian tradition believe that time is linear and that it started somewhere and it's going somewhere. We're on our way there and where we're on our way to is the kingdom in its fullness. And that the coming king is, the kingdom is coming and that there will be an ultimate future where all things are put right and all things are submitted. All of creation 
comes under the lordship of Jesus. We sang that actually, I think, this morning about all creation being under the reign and rule of Christ. And so it is our conviction that both Christ is our king today, and as you submit to Christ as your king more and more daily, his kingdom grows through you and around you to the world around you because of your submission to him as king, and that we live in this anticipation that there will be a future time where the king will come fully and the kingdom will come in its fullness. And that is what the picture of eternity is for the Christian worldview. That's why we have hope in life after death, because there is an anticipation for a future of full life, life in its fullness, where all things are made holy and perfected with Christ as the king here on earth as it is in heaven today. So Christ as Savior, Christ as Sanctifier, Christ as Healer, and Christ as Coming King. This is, again, one of the distinctives of the alliance that we're a part of. And if you ask most Christians, they would probably agree with those things, even if they're not alliance. But it's one of the things that identifies us, that we, we submit to living under and teaching as primary and core, along with everything else we do. And what I love about it is it really the centrality of Christ in the whole thing. It's Christ as. It's not a bunch of different doctrinal statements about a bunch of different things. We have one of those. If you come to the membership meeting after, or membership info, I'll tell you what our statement of faith that we live under is. Um, But the central focus is Christ. Christ as, Christ as, Christ as, Christ. It's very Jesus-centered, Jesus-focused. And that's who we are at Southside. All things we want to turn back to Jesus. And so then how shall we live if this is all true? I'm going to wrap up here. We at Southside, we believe that we should be with Jesus. We should spend time in his loving presence as our sanctifier, as our healer, as our savior, as our coming king. We believe that we can experience his real presence by turning our eyes towards Christ. So we be with Jesus. We become like Jesus when we spend time with Jesus. So we spend time meditating on the reality of his presence and the truth of who he is. We become like Jesus. We study his ways in scripture and we learn his ways through the body and we live obedience in, our, in accordance with Jesus' ways. And then when we do that, we start to live like Jesus lived. So we be with Jesus, we become like Jesus, and then we will do the things that Jesus would do, as if Jesus were you, Christ formed in you, which would look like serving, giving, sharing, etc., 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 the life follower of Jesus. And at Southside, we believe that this happens best in the context of relationship. And so we're going to be annoyingly pushing you into more intimate relationship with one another. That gets messier and more complicated because the closer you get to people, the more potential you have for conflict with people, but it actually is the opportunity for Christ to be formed in you and for you to live out his mandate for you to one another and to the world.